Good morning. The scripture reading today is Matthew 11, 4 through 14. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Perfect. Thank you, Kylie. Good morning. I see, I see where the confusion comes in. It's, it's, it's 4 through 14, yet it also contains 4 and 6, yet it says 1 through 6. It's like meta typos, just layered on top of each other. That's me. Good morning. Welcome to Watermark. Um, it's a picture of my brain right there. Now, okay. So we're going to talk about a few things today. Uh, we're going to talk about um, sort of some of the symbolism that, that is being used here, reeds, fine clothing and palaces and all that, um, that is very specific. And we're going to get to that. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about prophets. Uh, what is the word of God? What is that? Um, what message are the prophets delivering? Uh, then we're going to talk about sort of um, things that, Last week we talked a lot about lenses and the lenses through which we, we look at Jesus and how those lenses can distort our image of Jesus. This week we're going to look at a little bit about, um, about sort of how, how we may possess some of those lenses now, how we kind of build those and receive those lenses, um, and how we can get rid of them. And then we're going to talk a little bit about evangelism on the end. Um, so, okay, I'm going to start right here. Here we go. Here we go. As John's disciples were leaving... Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Okay, so he's talking about John the Baptist, who was in the wilderness. Um, John the Baptist, during this conversation, is is currently being held in the palace of Mercurius, um, in the desert along the Jordan. It it is one, one... of Herod's multiple palaces that are in the wilderness there, Herod Antipas, um, who is, he's not the king, he was never a king, he was a governor um, and a ruler over sort of the Jewish territories. He was, he was half Jewish, the Jewish pe- people refused to be ruled by anyone who was not Jewish, um, and they're like, here's the best we can do, Herod, and they're like, well, we're still not happy, but he still is there ruling over them, um, and so... Um, Jesus uses two symbols here, reeds and palaces, both of which can readily be found 
in the desert along the Jordan River, these palaces that were there, it was still standing in his day. There was several of them out there. Um, and then there were plenty of these reeds that were blowing in the wind in the middle of the desert. Um, now, Jesus is not using a, a vague description, a general description of anything. He is actually, in the Jewish mindset, being very specific about what he's talking about. Um, and I'll tell you what I mean in a minute. So it, it's, it's not like Jesus is saying, you didn't go out into the wilderness to see rocks and stones and mountains. You went to see John the Baptist. Um, that's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, in order to fully understand what's going on here, you have to understand propaganda in the first century in the Roman Empire. Um, one of the ways that the emperors and the kings and the rulers would um, infiltrate sort of the empire with their propaganda, one of the ways they would get their message out, was by minting coins. And these coins would be ta- basically th- these round sort of uh, pieces of metal, silver, um, sometimes lead, sometimes gold, and different things depending on what you're looking for. So they would put it there and they would strike it with a piece of iron with a carving in the end of it. Then they would flip it over. They would flip the hammer over and they would strike it with the other side, which had the other side of the coin printed on it. Um, and the images that they would put on these coins, they were not uniform throughout the whole kingdom. Each king, each ruler, each emperor, um, each governor was free to mint their own coins for their own people. Um, and these coins could have whatever image that the emperor wanted to put out. So um, let's say an emperor wanted to be viewed as mighty and strong. He might put the image of a bull. He might put the image of a certain god that represents might and strength. If a, if a king wanted to put out sort of a, um, a reminder of Roman might and victory, they would put like a, a palm leaf, um, which symbolized victory in the, in the, in the first century. Um, in, if they wanted to uh, tell the sort of the story of the conquering of another nation, a great city, they would use some kind of symbol and put it on there. And as these coins were circulated, as they would move throughout the empire and people would buy and sell and trade, they would get a handful of coins and they would look at them and it would tell the stories of the emperor. They would always glorify the emperor they would all, or the ruler, whoever made them. They would always be hyperbolic. They would always be uh, symbolic of their might, of their deity and of their greatness. Um, the emperors of Rome demanded that you worship them like gods. Uh, if, you, if you went to Ephesus in the first century, you would see these palaces dedicated to the worship of the emperor gods. Um, Augustus even said, um, he called himself um, the son of God. And he, when his father died, there was a comet in the sky. And he said, look, there's my father um, ascending to the right hand of the throne. Okay? Just all the symbolism is there. And the Christians would use this symbolism, okay? To say, they are not Lord. Jesus is Lord, okay? So Jesus says, what did you go into the desert to see? A reed swaying in the wind? Okay. 11 years before Jesus said this, Herod, the half-Jewish emperor, uh, half-Jewish ruler over the Jewish area, minted this coin. Uh, this is a reed on the right here. On one side has the reed. On the other side, it has sort of the, the victory wreath that you would wear on your head, okay, symbolizing power. Now, the reed in Aramaic is symbolic and synonymous um, with authority. So a ruler would sometimes... Have a in the, in the morning be given a fresh reed, reed stock, and they could they could point at things with it, they could slap people with it, they could just do it. It's the symbol of power. It's they'd be, they'd literally be called the cane bearer. They whack you at any time if you, they weren't happy with what you're doing. So um, Herod is the cane bearer. His symbol in this time is the reed. Jesus says, "Did you go into the into the wilderness to see a reed swaying in the wind?" Okay, the Jewish people knew. 
that there were at least 35 different verses that described God as controlling the wind. He uses that wind to break stuff, to clear vegetation, um, to cause storms, to calm, to cool places. Um, All through their scriptures, there is the symbolism of God is the one who moves across the land. He, he, He causes the wind to move and to flow. And so Jesus, when he says, when you went out to see John the Baptist, did you go to see a reed shaking in the wind? They're like, you you didn't go to see Herod because you know that Herod only has power as long as God lets him have power. You know as well as I do, when the Jewish people repent, God will come and just wipe Herod out and we'll we'll have power again. We just need to to repent, okay? I've told the story. It's it's the cycle of of Israel, right? If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, go back about five weeks and start listening and catch up. Um, So all these passages about the wind and God controlling the wind. He's, and, and so he's taking a slight, a slight like, a, like a jab at Herod. He's like, you would never venture into the wilderness to see Herod. You don't view Herod as God. God, Yahweh, is, is far above every other God in this world. And you know that. And I know what you went out there to see. He says, there's, there's another thing. Oh, by the way, this is great. Five years after, the, after this coin was minted, the, uh, the reed coin that symbolized authority. Five years later, Herod prints another coin. It looks like this. It's got a, it's got a, a palm branch on it. The symbol of victory. And remember Jesus heading in to the royal Jewish city of David, of Jerusalem, as he's walking through the gates. What are the people doing? They're waving palm branches. They're taking Herod's symbol and they're saying, nope, nope, Herod's not going to be the victor. Jesus, hail. All, and and, and they're hailing Jesus as the victor, entering in to the place where the throne of Jerusalem would be, that would rule all of the world, where God would rule, right? So uh, the Jewish people were very much, and Jesus and the disciples and the apostles were very much in tune with the politics of their day. They were very much speaking out about all of this. In, in, it's all through the scriptures. It's everywhere. Um, it's even in these little places where you see Jesus picking up coins and talking about the image that is on it. Um, it's everywhere. Okay, now, so that's, that's the reed swaying in the wind. Now there's another part here. It says, um, uh, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. So the word there for fine clothes uh, is this word malakoi. Everyone say malakoi. Okay, it's a word that is, it basically at its basic meaning means soft. That's what it means. Um, it's speaking of, of a guy wearing really expensive, soft clothing who was sort of like a uh, part of the king's posse, right? Um, if you picture like, like a rap artist and they're surrounded by a bunch of dudes that you don't know who they are, but they're wearing like velvet track suits from head to toe, right? Gold chains. Um, and they're just there like, and, and the guy says something, they're like, yeah, 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 everything, yeah. And, and so they're there to agree and to hype up the crowd, right? This is, this is what they were doing. This is what people would do. They would be around the king, Herod. Um, they would serve him, give him whatever he wanted, and they would spend their time praising him. And they would wear really expensive, fine clothing. Um, and they would live a life of opulence in the presence of the king. Right? Um, and it would, be, um, it would be their full-time job to do this. Now, Jesus um, says, you didn't go into the desert to see these 
people wearing these fine, soft clothing in these palaces. And of course, there were other palaces there too. Um, this is Herod's other palace, Masada. It is where the Jewish people, after the year 70 AD, after, after, after um, sort of leading a revolt against Rome, Rome destroying their temple, they fled. They took over Herod's own place, Masada, and they hid out there for um, several years. I think it may have been a decade. I don't really remember at this moment. Um, and eventually, Rome builds a giant ramp all the way up to Masada and wipes them all out. Um, now, these palaces were very active in those days. They were big. They were massive. They were beautiful. Um, and it was filled with the emperor would be there and his posse would be there. And Jesus says, you didn't go out into the desert to see somebody wearing super fine clothes and gathering up to the emperor, telling him all the wonderful things that he is. Just giving him compliments, agreeing with his every word and every phrase. That's not why you went into the desert. You went into the desert to see somebody different. Um, and then there's this contrast here because... Um, John, him in the desert, his life was vastly different. He wore um, sort of the, the prophet's cloak, if you will. He, he wore what Elijah wore, which is um, a, a camel hair sort of pelt. Um, and he, he, he fasted his whole life. There was a particular diet that he, he ate locust and honey, super gross. And this is how he lived, out there in the wilderness. And he never once said nice things about the people who were in charge. He lived this rebellious life out in the desert where he, he shunned the temple work, the authority, the religious authority there. He thought it had gone wrong. And he shuns the political authority. He believes that's all wrong. And he speaks truth to power. And when you do this, first off, you get a lot of attention. Okay? Um, you know the feeling. It's when someone says something, maybe online or whatever, that you're glad they said, but you could never say it. And all you do, you're like, I like that. Not going to share it. I don't need my family commenting all over this thing. I'm not going to share. But I do like it. Okay? Now, that is sort of it. When people stand up and they say something and they speak a truth that is controversial, you are drawn to it. It's something that you, we all would like to do. And it's what the prophet did. And it's what John did. And John's in the wilderness. And he says, and Jesus says, you didn't go out there to see the king. You didn't go out there to see the people kissing up to the king. Nobody pays attention to them. You wanted to see the person who was standing up to the king. And when you stand up to the king, when you stand up to the power, and when you say the things that nobody has the bravery to say, uh, oftentimes you end up in prison. You end up persecuted. You end up with black eyes. Um, and you end up with hate, angry comments, and you end up, that's where you end up. Um, that's where John ended up. And so John is in prison, a deep dungeon in the bottom of the fortress of Mercurius, um, Herod's fortress, and that's where he is when he sends his disciples to Jesus. Um, okay, so we follow this up with this. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So we're going to get to the direct meaning of this in a couple minutes here. Um, first off, I have to take a glimpse at my notes so I can stay on course. Okay. Um, oftentimes when we think about prophecy and prophets, we instantly think, oh, it's somebody who tells the future. It's not necessarily what, that's, that's not like the definition of prophecy at all. Um, it could be included. It's sort of like this, if you go there, this is going to happen. If you, go, if you go out in the rain, you're going to get wet. Like there's, there is like sort of a cause and effect like Israel. Pay attention to what you're doing. 
here's where this has led before, here's where it's going to lead in the future. Um, it is also, prophecy is, is at, its, at its base level sort of meaning, it is, it is it's delivering the word of God. Now, um, all these words have particular meaning in our day. So like, again, prophecy, you think future. Um, it's, it's, think of the word of God, but when you think of word of God, oftentimes you just think the Bible. Um, okay, so I'm going to say something that some of you have never heard. And, and you're going to feel really uncomfortable for a minute. That's okay. Um, the Bible is not the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Scriptures say that several times. It says that over and over and over. It describes Jesus as the point of it all, the final word that, that God has for you. There are no more prophets after him. Um, the last prophet comes right before him and says, this is about to happen. The final word of God. When the Bible itself, the New Testament, talks about the word of God, the canon of scripture, it's called the canon. It's a collection of of the letters and the writings of the New Testament. It didn't exist yet. They are talking, and if you were to go back in time and ask them, when you say word of God, what do you mean? Jesus. He is, in other words, the fullness of God's message for mankind is contained in Jesus. Okay? Um, Everything you would like to know about God... Every question you have, every time you find yourself thinking, um, well, what is the character of God like? What does God require of me? What is, if you look at Jesus, he is the pinnacle of the revelation. He's a mirror image and is the presence of God in the world, okay? Now, that being said, um, Jesus, the word of God, is the full, the whole thing, beginning to end, the embodiment of who Jesus is. For Israel, he was the Davidic king. He was the priestly king. He was um, all of the things that they had said. He was the one who was, gonna, who was going to um, take the law and put it in flesh. Um, he was the one who was going to bring sort of the last covenant God made with them. He's gonna, he said, um, I'm going I'm to send you someone who's going to cause what's called the circumcision of the heart. It's not going to be this external thing. It's this internal thing where God's going to put this on your heart. Um, and Jesus is the one that does that. He is the fulfillment of everything that they were looking for, and they're having a hard time recognizing it. Um, and um, there is, when you think of the prophets in the Old Testament, um, all the way up to John, what the prophets were is they were here to deliver the word of God, but there's a specific thing that happens right before they deliver the word of God. So they're going to give you like an aspect of God, an aspect of Jesus, and they're all going to be focused on a different thing. Um, there's a passage in, in, in 1 Samuel that describes sort of this process. It says, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them. Okay, so God, merging with flesh for a finite amount of time to deliver a message to the people. And then there's the separation. Even David at one point prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Okay? Um, it's this melding of divine and human just for a split moment to reveal an aspect of God that mankind needs to have. And this happens slowly over a very long period of time. So I would describe, if I were to describe sort of the work, use a metaphor for the work that the prophets were doing, um, they are sort of um, pretend somebody is painting a picture and they're over here and the back of it is, is facing that way and they're here and they're painting the picture. Um, and then you look around the picture, there are paint splatters and then there's like a table with all kinds of painting equipment and you can see the medium. Uh, maybe there's pastes and there's colors and there's brushes and there's all kinds of things. Those 
sort of are the prophet, like giving you a glimpse of like, here's what God is using, here's what God is doing, here's sort of hints um, and promises of what's going to be contained in this final image. But until that, that artist picks up and turns that thing around and puts it there, you don't know what the final image looks like. And so they're sort of grasping at straws, trying to understand. And so some of the prophets are like, um, are like hey, you've forgotten justice. You're not reconciling with your enemies. You're not. And then other ones are over here saying, um, you're, you're, you're idolaters and you need to repent and you need to get your mind back on, on our king, Yahweh. And, and so they're all calling out these different things. It's all like little pieces of this painting that would be revealed when according to the Jewish people, Elijah would appear and say, everybody, we're ready to turn the painting around. And then he would take it, spin it around, and put it down. And he would be the last prophet, because once you see the whole painting, there's no need. You can clean up. You're good. You have the painting. So the Jewish people, people believed that Elijah would appear before their final Davidic king who would sit on the throne and Unite Israel again, mend the broken things, um, and um, bring everybody in the world under one reign and one God and one Lord. Okay? This is how they believed it. Even to this day, the Jewish people still, when they hold their Passover seders, they leave a chair for Elijah to show up. And they have a little place marker, and it says Elijah, and it's an empty chair. And it's their sort of proclamation of, like, one day Elijah's going to come, and he's going to reveal to us who the Messiah is. The entire book of Matthew is a Jewish argument that Jesus is that Messiah. His, his entire genealogy is centered around David. He's always being linked back to all the promises that have been made to the people. This is what the, the church, this is what Matthew in, 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 in community with his church, when they wrote this book, this is what they gave to us to see. Okay? Um, there's this passage in Malachi that says, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So Jesus is saying, um, John the Baptist, he's wearing the pelt of Elijah. He's eating the diet of Elijah. He's living where Elijah lived. He's doing all the things that Elijah did. He's Elijah. Guess who I am? And Jesus is saying, I am your Lord. Here I am. And the people had a really hard time with this. And there's a reason they had a really hard time with this. Uh, it's because... The way that Jesus was living um, did not align with what they had expected him to do. Now, Jesus talks about John. Here's what he says. He says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Okay. When you're reading the Bible, you need to ask a question. It's a very simple question. It is, it is why did they save this? Every line of it. Why did they save this? The question you should ask is not necessarily, what does this mean to me? The question is, why did they leave this for me? What does this mean? Like, why? What did this mean in their eyes? Why did they want us to know it? Okay. So the church, Matthew, the pastor of the church, that we now call the Matthean church. Um, there was something here that they had that they wanted 2,000 years from them Watermark Church in Tampa to see. Are you ready? It's an important thing. They want you to see this. Um, as much as John knew and how incredible John was and all the amazing things that John did, you have something John did not. The full portrait of Jesus. The execution of Jesus on the cross. The, um, 
the picture of Jesus making unclean people clean again, reconciling with the oppressors of his own people. You have an image of God that John never had. John was decapitated by Herod not too long after this. We'll read about it in chapter 14. John never saw the thing that he was pointing at, the thing that he was describing, okay? Um, John never received it. In fact, John, had he seen the full revelation of Jesus, would have changed his theology about who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. That might not sit well with you. But the fact is, what John was expecting, what all the Jewish people in the first century were expecting, is not what Jesus was. John was expecting um, a harsh, judgmental Jesus that was going to come and wipe out all their oppressors and destroy them all and set up, again, their Jewish national state of only their people. But Jesus argues back in, at the beginning of chapter 11 and says, here's what John needs to realize. He needs to go back and read about the prophet Elijah and he needs to see that everything that, that the scripture said was going to happen, happened. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the deaf can hear. People are being healed and made whole again. Enemies are sitting at the table with those that they oppressed. Reconciliation is happening. And you may not have wanted the Messiah to do this, but this is what the Messiah is here to do. Um, John had some views on Jesus that were, like I talked about last week, they, were a, they, they, they came from a particular lens that he had been given, that he was like looking at Jesus through. Um, this lens came from 400 years of oppression under the Assyrians, under the Romans. They had been beaten, run roughshod over, over and over and over again. The people destroyed their people, their land, um, took taxes from them, treated them unjustly and beat them and, and, and really, really diminished their identity of who they were. Just beat them down. And so John has developed some bitterness. All of the people in the intertestamental period had developed this sort of bitterness against the people who had oppressed them. And so when Jesus came and started reconciling and, and making and, and even serving and healing those people, they had a really, really hard time with it. Now, last week I posted, um, I, I, you know, we have some online banter on Facebook and I was talking and I said, I said a lot of times, <laughs> some of you are laughing, that's funny. So, so there is, there is, there's something that I posted about John and the lens that he had because John had a really, really hard time um, with the fact that Jesus was eating and, 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 and being loving and reconciliatory towards the people that had oppressed John and John's people and Jesus' people for that matter. And I said, we, we like to think that Jesus is going to come at some point and just destroy all our enemies, just wipe them out and then we win and we're victorious. But the way Jesus destroys your enemies is not how you'd expect. Jesus will destroy your enemies by simply embracing them and making them your kin, your brother and sister, and sitting them at the table across from you and serving you both communion. And he's going to look at both of you and he's going to say, my body broken for you, my blood poured out for you. This is how Jesus is going to get rid of your enemies. He, he has every intention of reconciling with them and he wants you to reconcile with them as well. And I got many people reaching out to me, like at least three or four, five, four people, reached out and said, I have a really hard time with this because I have been hurt. I have been abused. I am carrying pain. I have been mistreated. And all I want 
is for their destruction. That's all I care about. And I go alert them on, on social media. And when I see difficult things that happened, I'm, 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 I'm almost happy. Because I, this, it's too painful, the things that they did to me. And they're just going to get away with it. How could I ever think that Jesus would reconcile with them and want me to reconcile with them? This is what John struggled with. So what's really interesting is you and I, most of us, the vast majority of us are reading the Bible through a particular lens that is 21st century, um, heavily influenced by sort of Anglo theology and European theology. Um, in other words, we've, we've been very powerful for a very long time. But when you read the Bible and, and commentaries about this passage from other angles, African-American, for instance, um, you read different things. There's a man, Michael Joseph Brown, who writes this. He says, It is often difficult for persons who have been oppressed and mistreated, like John, to see beyond their own pain and desire for divine judgment. It's difficult. I, I, many of you are, this is not a foreign feeling. People have hurt you, and, and this is what you desire for them. That is an area where I believe God wants to work in your heart, where He wants to free you from that, because you're a prisoner. To that pain. Um, and I believe the gospel is not just here to heal our souls, it's here to heal all of us. This is why we do things like we started, we started a counseling center and we have counselors working with people. If you need counseling, reach out. Um, I, I think Jesus wants to mend these parts of your heart. There's, a, there, there's an entire book dedicated to this idea in the Old Testament. People don't realize it. It's the book of Jonah. I've talked about it not too long ago. Um, the book of Jonah um, is a giant letter about reconciling with your enemies. The prophet Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is, is a city uh, ruled by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians had uh, conquered Israel, Jonah's people, and had oppressed them for hundreds of years and had slaughtered their people, make them do hard labor. And God speaks to Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, you're going to go to Nineveh and you're going to preach repentance to turn and to follow Yahweh. And Jonah's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and we like to make the story of Jonah about Jonah's disobedience um, because he's afraid to preach the gospel. But what that is actually is Jonah's disobedience to God comes directly from the fact that he has no desire to see those people come to God. He wants them destroyed. He wants them to burn. In fact, the original audience, when they're reading the story, and they're like, oh, no, no, we're not going to Nineveh. And then Jonah says, uh, I'm not going to go. And he runs. He gets in the boat and goes the other way. The readers of the, the original audience of the book of Jonah would be like, go, 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 go. Do not go there. And there's a reason. And it's very simple. Jonah lays it out. He says, but Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Um, We like to read this, and we start at this other verse where we're like, um, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's not how Jonah was writing this. He was angry that God was saving his enemies. And the book ends with a question. Should I not spare these people? Are they not people that I have created? It ends with a question. This is a letter to the Israelite people written 
incredibly beautifully in this incredible story that is sort of like, do you not think God also cares for the Assyrians? You know, wants to save them, even though they've oppressed you? Also created in the image of God. Also our children of God. God wants, God wants to reconcile with them. How could you think that God is only interested in reconciling with you? Um, this is what happens, and it affects the lens with which we read the scriptures. Martin Luther King, he says, In the struggle for human dignity, the oppressed people of the world must not succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter or indulging in hate campaigns. To retaliate with hate and bitterness would do nothing but intensify the existence of hate in our world. We have learned through the grim realities of life and history that hate and violence solve nothing. They only serve to push us deeper and deeper into the mire. Violence begets violence. Hate begets hate. Toughness begets a greater toughness. It is all a descending spiral, and and the end is destruction for everybody. And he's right. The picture of God hanging on the cross, the final image of like what God will go through for you is not one of him coming down and slaughtering all his enemies. It is him calling out, for God to forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. What if that became your line? Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand that there's hope, there's joy, there's something else. They don't understand. And maybe you can take on the role of prophet and show them a little bit of the paint splatter in an attempt to reveal to them what life is really about, who God really is. Um, So John is in this interesting place. John doesn't see the fullness of Jesus, but John is in a really interesting, precarious position where he is teaching the people something and about someone and about a person whom he would never fully see. I think that's beautiful. There's a, uh, um, there's a story that, that William Barclay writes in his commentary about this where he talks about how he used to sit in, uh, when he was a child, um, probably 20s and 30s, he would sit in, in, in his bedroom at night and he would watch as the sun was going down out his window as a man would go street lamp to street lamp, and he would, it was a long time ago, and he would light these street lamps with this sort of flame on a thing. He would turn the gas on and light it. And he said, but the city, his particular city, had hired a blind man to do this job. So there's this blind man walking with a flame, and he's, he's feeling the pole, and he turns on the gas, and he reaches up and lights it, and goes to the next one, finds his way to the next one, and lights it. And he said the, the philosophical sort of, um, the weight of this that he was talking about, how this man was bringing light to people whom he himself would never see. He would never be able to like enjoy it. the illumination that it brings. It was simply his job to bring it, something that he would never fully experience and see. That is John the Baptist. That is what John was doing. That is what the prophets were doing in general. You, today, live in a world um, that only exists, all the wonderful things that you have that exist, I'm talking economically, socially, I'm talking biblically, the, the church, all of it, only exists because there were people before you who were doing sort of this prophetic thing where they were describing a world that did not yet exist that, that they knew would one day because of the work that they were doing. And so you now um, are a picture of what the original church was setting out to do. In an empire completely filled with social hierarchy and structure, um, rich and poor and masters and slaves, and then men and then women were actually at the bottom of it all. And in the church, they were equal. Slaves would lead the services. Men and women worshiped together. 
and teach together. They were equals in the early church. This was a picture to them of the kingdom of God that would come. You now can enjoy all of the fruits of their labor. They were arrested. They were killed. They were fed to lions and wolves, torn apart by bears. They were tortured, skinned alive, boiled in oil because this is the vision that they had. And now you sit here and enjoy it and take it for granted, this thing that people died to create. And here you are. And it's not just that. The early Christians did all kinds of things. They invented the idea of of public education. They invented the idea of hospitals. They invented all these things that you now, that the world enjoys, that the Christians said, in the kingdom of God, there will be no illness and no sickness. There will be no pain. There will be knowledge. People will know. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to create, start creating that now. And we're going to bring that future kingdom into this world as much as we possibly can. And when people ask why we're doing this, we're going to point and say, because Jesus is Lord, not this other thing, not this other person, not this other system. Jesus is Lord. And now the world just takes these things for granted. These are small glimpses of the kingdom of God breaking through. They are. The, the, the church is an image of the kingdom of God breaking through. Also, there is a calling for you to keep painting that picture because we're not done yet. There is still not full equality in the church. There's not. And so we proclaim that one day churches um, will understand that men and women are equals in the church. In my own denomination, in our own denomination, they will see this. The future of the church will be men and women in mutual submission to each other, serving alongside each other. That is the future of the church. That is coming. That will happen. And we are declaring that. And that is the picture that we are painting that we may not see in our lifetime, but future generations will. Because the kingdom of God is breaking through. And we declare um, justice and we work for it. And we declare healing and we work for it. And we declare all of these things that we know one day will be. We, we declare like the songs that we sang this morning. Until all are fed, until all know home, until all are free, until justice is done. Until peace is the way and grace is the law and love is the rule. God's realm. That's what it looks like. When we no longer lock up and throw away those who don't live up to our law standards, when we no longer kill them, when instead of um, a justice system based upon retribution, we have a justice system based upon restoration, making people whole again. When things like abortion no longer happen because we have eradicated all of the things that lead to this kind of behavior. When these things have been um, summed up in Christ and Christ is ruling in our midst. The kingdom, the future kingdom is at hand. It is available to you now. The church is a mini heavenly kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. We are worldwide and we should collectively be working towards these things. The future kingdom is here. It is here, but it is not yet here. It's sort of this dichotomy. And since we know it is coming, we work and live as if it is here now. And the whole time, we point to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one whom we look to as the hope of all of this. And so evangelism requires a little bit of creativity. It requires some storytelling. It requires some, have you thought about a world that looks like this? Where did that come from? Jesus. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about reconciling with our enemies? Well, that's a stupid idea, really, because that's Jesus' idea. Perhaps you've heard of him the one you've been claiming for so long. And we tell the story and we help people imagine the kingdom of God and we invite them 
into the church to take part in it. Okay? Um, this is part of the way evangelism works. By the way, if you're like a songwriter, um, we need your imagination to rewrite some, some Christian worship. It needs some imagination. It needs some, here's what's possible. Instead of, here's what we're missing, here's what's left behind. Here's what's possible. Um, this is the world that we talk about, the world that we tell about. And we call people to repentance. Repent, rethink everything in light of Jesus. Follow Jesus along with us. Um, and we invite people into this. That's what the church is. And there was one thing that the church did that we do every week. We do communion, our communion service. You guys can uh, gather the elements and spread around the room. Um, the early church was this small sort of micro picture of the kingdom of God. Because when they gathered, there was a table that they would set. And in the first century, table fellowship, we've talked about this, is incredibly important. When you ate a meal with somebody, you were sharing your identity and your status with them. And so there'd be these tables where the people would be sitting from end to end, all the way down, reclining, sharing food. And it would be rich and poor, men and women, slave and free, Greek, Scythian, everyone, Jew, everyone there together. And on the table would be two things. There'd be bread and there'd be wine. The bread was the symbol of the body of Christ. The wine was a symbol of the blood of Christ. And from all these different walks of life, they gathered together and they looked at each other across the table, some who used to be enemies and now they are together as friends, Roman centurions and Jewish peasants sitting across the table from each other, taking a piece of bread, dipping it in the wine and saying, the body of Christ was broken for you and the blood of Christ was spilled for you. We are brothers and sisters and eating it. That is the most beautiful picture of the kingdom that there is. It's shalom, it's things being as it should be, um, everything reconciled to God through the work of Christ. That is a symbol of what we're doing here. Um, I want to invite everyone in this room to take communion with us, if you're comfortable with it. There's two elements, there's bread and wine. You take a piece of bread, you dip it in the wine, and you eat it. Um, No matter where you are, if you think you're super holy or you think you're a really bad sinner, you come to the table, and one of you doesn't receive more or less because of your spiritual performance, you received the same. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ spilled for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us into our time of communion. Help us see each other. Help us to see that there's a, a story behind our pain. There's a story behind the pain of others. There is bitterness. Um, there are weights that we are carrying. Free us from them. Allow us to reconcile. Give us a creative imagination to imagine your world, your kingdom, what you want um, this world to look like and help us to work towards that day when you are Lord of all. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.